welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. Okay, are we ready to go? Are we recording? This morning we are going to have a look at Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18, which if you look in your Bible is a very big chunk of scripture. It brings us into the closing act of the book of Revelation and therefore into uh, how God's going to draw his uh, story of human history to a conclusion or to a climax. You'll remember that when we were together last we looked at chapter 15 which was the seven bowls of rock. And so the angel who had the seven bowls came to John and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast who was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden bowl, uh, sorry, a golden cup, full of abominations and impurities of, of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. All right, now that's following the uh, Greek text there rather than the translators of most English versions who put that first sentence as the start of the next paragraph. So, we have a woman described as a harlot or a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast drunk on the blood of the saints. Now remember that John is writing to comfort the Christians in seven little churches in Asia Minor, in seven of the cities dotted along the uh, west coast of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, which in modern days is Western Turkey. This is not a comforting picture. 
because he sees this uh, elaborately dressed, no doubt beautiful, seductive woman, because that's a job, seduction, um, dressed in finery, dressed in purple, the colour of royalty, and in red, which is the colour of scarlet. Right, a woman in red apparently does quite a bit to uh, men. Not what I was saying. <laughs> and the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. So who's the prostitute? Well, there are some clues. We should know by this uh, who the prostitute is and who the monster is. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Um, I can't see the bit that I'm looking for. You need a bigger Bible, Greg. Possibly. I don't know that that would make the print any bigger. Um, so, the woman is Rome. Because the beast that she rides upon, which is the empire, has seven heads. And if you know even a little bit about ancient Rome, or even modern Rome, you'll know that the ancient city of Rome was built on seven hills. And so in this bit, when we're talking about the sevens, some of those sevens are a literal equation of uh, the woman with the city of Rome. Now John is drawing here also on the, um, the prophecies of Daniel, in particular Daniel 7, uh, chapter 14, which is where the uh, ten horns come from. That's drawn directly out of Daniel's vision of a similar beast when he was looking forward into the history of the world. Um, this is no street hooker, though. Right? This is a high-class prostitute because she's seducing the kings of the earth, which is what Rome did. If you know... Uh, about the way in which Rome operated, um, Rome would go into a territory with their formidable military power and if they could avoid conflict, they did. Right? What they would do is they would go to the king and they'd say, uh, mate, it's going to be ugly for you guys um, if you surrender and give allegiance to the empire, then you'll have to pay this, this, and this, but you get to take a cut of that, and you then become part of the empire, you'll have responsibilities to us, but we will protect you. And so very often the Roman Empire operated by seduction. And for those, the kings, the local kings who were in power, this was uh, very lucrative um, and led to a very luxurious way of life. 
the harlot seduced the kings of the earth. And so John says um, that this woman has seduced the kings of the earth, but not just the kings of the earth, but also the people. <clears throat> right? The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the dwellers on earth have become drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. So it's not just the local rulers, the rulers of the little kingdoms that got absorbed into the empire that were seduced by Rome's power and wealth and glory, but also the ordinary people, because rather than going up against Rome, becoming part of the empire opened up trade um, and opportunity across the empire so that the local people had the opportunity to become wealthy as well. The only ones who suffered in this, of course, were the slaves, and they estimate that about a third of the population of the Roman Empire um, were slaves, so people who were the property of so someone else. Like a class system, it was it was like a class system, except they wouldn't have seen it like that because slaves were your property. I mean, a middle class. You were the talking brother. <laughs> Sorry? Okay. All right. Also, also, just think about the Old Testament as a whole. They would have, there were times in the Old Testament where God told them to go and make, like, to go and be with another country. Um, yes, specifically in Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is prophesying during the exile and saying, you're going to be there a long time. Yeah. You're going to be here 70 years was the period that he prophesied. Therefore, settle down, make friends, do business. That's what he says. But in 70 years, be ready because I'm going to bring you back. So that's symbolic, 70 years? No, it was true almost to the date. In fact, um, if you read the book of Jeremiah, so, so specifically Jeremiah 29 30 and Daniel, you'll find that in Daniel, what Daniel was doing was Daniel was praying because he's clearly been reading prophet, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy and he's done some sums in his head and thought, hang on, the 70 years is up. Aren't we meant to be going home? And so the book of Je the prophecies of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel are tied together, and they're tied together around this period of seventy years. All right? There were some false prophets that Jeremiah was going up again, and they were saying oh, it's only going to last a year. Um, so that was the context of his uh, prophecy of seventy years. Now, just in case we're not sure who we're talking about, God has labelled. Uh, the woman and on her forehead she's got a name a name of mystery Babylon the great the mother of prostitutes 
right? Just so that we're clear, this is the city of Rome. Now, why is John calling them Babylon? Well, it's because he's a political prisoner in exile, surrounded by Roman soldiers. Um, they're the ones who are going to have to carry the letter um, to the people that he's writing to. And if he specifically names Rome, uh, that could go badly for him. <laughs> All right? So Babylon is a cipher for Rome. But the other thing is that John is prophesying a bigger picture here than just specifically Rome. That is, that all empires end the same way, as we shall see shortly. So Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, <coughs> the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now this is a not so cryptic warning to the local Christians. Because so far, only one guy, Anibus, has died. Right? There's only been one martyr in Asia Minor at this point. What John is saying, if the empire is about to get drunk on the blood of the martyrs, of those who are faithful to the land, a lot more Christians are going to die. Not that comforting a picture, but a reality. And when I saw her, I marvelled. But the angel said, Why do you marvel? Marvel. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns uh, that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Okay, now what's that about? The beast was, was not, and is. Does that phrasing sound familiar at all? What, what does it remind, remind us of? Well, it reminds us of John's description of God in chapter 1, verses 4 and 8 in particular, the one who was and is and is to come. What John is saying here is that the beast is a parody of God. The beast was and was not and is. Um, it's not talking about the beast having any specific, specific historical ref, uh, reference. Rather that uh, the beast, which is the empire, is allied with Satan. Because where does the beast come from? It comes up out of the bottomless pit. Right? Probably nothing good comes out of bottomless pits. And so the beast is none other than Satan himself manifesting in the form of empire. But it's about to go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So the people who don't belong to the Lamb get sucked in by this ugly parody of God because of its power and its apparent ability uh, or power over time. 
And John says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. Now he says that because the next little bit that he's about to say is very confusing and has caused uh, libraries full of books to be written. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now that's straightforward, right? He's saying the seven heads, this is Rome, a city built on seven hills. But then he goes on, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So seven kings, five have fallen, one is, one's coming soon, but only going to last a little while. So what do we do? Right, we go back to our history textbooks and we try and locate John's prophecy in history. So we're talking about the Roman Empire. So the first five Roman emperors, right? We're not going to start with Julius because he technically wasn't really um, an emperor. So that takes us to Octavian, who became the Emperor Augustus, then Tiberius, then Gaius, right? The crazy man we call Caligula, then Claudius, um, Gaius's uncle, and then Nero who died in CD 68. Alright, now, if you know your Roman history, you'll know that upon the death of Nero, we had the year of the four emperors, which sort of spans over our 68 and 69. So a period of a year where there were four emperors. So the one who is would be Galba, and the one who's to come is Otho. So Galba only lasted, he succeeded Nero, but he only lasted a couple of months and then he got killed by Otho. And then Otho, true to this prophecy, only lasted a little while and then the, uh, the general supporting Vespasian, who was at the time in AD 69 besieging the city of Jerusalem, um, they attacked the people who were um, looking after Otho, defeated them, and executed Otho so that when Vespasian arrived back in Rome, he became the ruler and started what we know as the Flavian dynasty, which um, ruled for the next 50 or 60 years. That sounds plausible, doesn't it? Is the problem? Sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah, the problem with this... Was that more than seven? No, no, that was, that was seven. But those things happened 20 years ago. Right? And it's questionable whether John would have known the details of Roman history the way we know it today. But this is the end of the 70s, and it's before the fall of Jerusalem. John, it's now in the 90s, and John's in exile on the island of Patmos off the coast of... Uh, Turkey, just off the, offshore from Ephesus. So, is this what we're meant to do with these seven kings? 
right? We're nearly all the way through the book of Revelation, and what I've been saying all along is that we're reading prophetic literature and we're reading apocryphal literature. We're talking in terms of symbols. And so it's very unlikely that John means you to get your history textbooks out and imply uh, the details of, try and match up the details of a prophetic apocalyptic vision to things that are actually going to happen in history. Right? Seven is the number of perfection. What John is saying is that, that from the point of view of the ordinary Christian sitting under pressure in a um, town in Asia at Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia, um, Rome looks like a perfect empire, unassailable, right? invincible, eternal. The reason we know that is because he goes on to talk about ten kings. So does that mean that we're meant to go through the next ten Roman emperors? That would take us to the end of the second century. Right? Very unlikely that that's what John's saying. Right? Ten is the number of, complete, number of completeness. So what John is saying here is that the empire, that's the beast, looks invincible. That's the seven kings. Five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. When he does come, he'll only remain for a little while. So we could locate that in history, but it lands us in the wrong spot. Right? We have very good reason to believe that John was writing in the 90s of the first century, right? not in the late 60s. Um, so it's better to take this as being a symbolic picture of the perfection of empire. As for the beast, this is where it gets even stranger, but remember this is apocalyptic. That was and is not, and is an eighth, uh, sorry, that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. What's John saying? John's saying that the beast, right, that was, is not, and is, becomes the eighth king. Right, so in other words, seven is the end of one age, the eighth begins a new season. And now, who's the king who's beginning the new season? It's the beast, right? The scary monster that's haunted the Christians all through the book in this, um, uh, throughout this prophecy. But what does the eighth do? It leads the empire to destruction. What John is saying is that when it looks like the empire is getting a new lease of life, the end comes. And the end comes from within. Right? One of the emperors will lead the empire to destruction. So the ten horns that you saw, so here the angel is interpreting, 
are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and hand over their power and their authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now we find a little further down in the chapter that these... Okay. I think we need some fresh air. Is that refreshing? It's nice, but I thought it might be a bit big. Okay. So we have ten kings that we will find uh, a little later on are kings from the east. Now, John is probably not here prophesying the tribes from the other side of the Euphrates. Right? Um, the tribes that eventually killed Rome came from the north, not from the east. <coughs> um, what John has in mind here are the local rulers who are the ones who are putting pressure on the people of God. These have allied themselves with the beast and they are getting their authority and their power from the beast and these are the ones who will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them but probably not before see the lamb is in heaven who's going to cop it if they make war on the lamb it's going to be the people who are faithful to the lamb and so once again we have this note of warning in the midst of this story of the demise, the destruction, the fall of empire, the people of God suffer terribly because the people in power who rule by the power of the beast will make war on the land. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So after this long description of empire, we get to verse 18, where John finally tells us who the woman is, even though we knew all along the woman is Rome. The beast is the empire, and the people of God are going to cop it. But notice at the end there, the ten kings, these are the local rulers, or probably the local rulers, who've gained their power from the empire. They're the ones who are going to attack the woman. Why would they do that? <coughs> 
Well, it's because they're allied with the beast. They get their power and their authority from the beast. And so when it looks like Rome will no longer be able to provide the living that it promised, provide the luxury, the excess to the rulers, provide the prosperity to the people, the little kingdoms will break away from empire and will plunder the city. All right, this is what John is saying. But remember, he's not, though he's talking specifically about Rome, he's also talking more widely about empire. And what John says here about the demise of the Roman Empire is true of every empire in human history. Most empires begin as an organisation of a people group and it's just successful, they have good rulers, and they do, they bring prosperity to their people. That's a good thing. This is an order that comes from God. Right? God wants his societies to be orderly. He places people, rulers, in charge of people groups. That authority comes from God. But what do humans do with the power and the authority that they've got? Right? They're corrupted by their position. They start to take advantage of that and they use their power for themselves rather than from the good of the people. Mm. It's at that point that they transfer from being the, God, the godly powers put in charge under the authority of God, ruling for the benefit of the people, to become those that are gaining their power from the beast. And how do these empires end? This way. And so when we get to chapter 18, and you'll probably be pleased to know when you see it, that I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 18, because it's long and it's repetitive. We'll just look at the start. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So this is a very fancy angel, a shining one, who illuminates everything around, shining like the sun, so everything becomes brighter. And this angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion, a wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her power are from the power of her luxurious living. <coughs> so the angel announces judgment on Babylon, which is Rome. The time has come, or has it? Right, the Visigoths came in 410 AD. That's a couple hundred years away. Right, then the, who was next? The Vandals were next, 455. 
and then the Ostrogoths were the ones who finally sacked the city and after which the empire is widely regarded to have finished in 456 CE um, when the Ostro Ostrogoths um, basically destroyed the city. So the final destruction of Rome is still two centuries away. John's not prophesying the end of the empire, he's prophesying the certainty that empire will end. All right, now there are plenty of Christians who are wanting to go through and match up the details of John's apocalyptic vision to things in history. Right, those kinds of Christians are going to run into trouble um, with the idea of the inerrancy of scripture because there's lots of things here that are the prophetic pictures of a prophet and a prophet with a wild imagination. And if you know anything about the prophets of the Old Testament, um, they see things in vivid pictures. And the pictures are true in the sense that they predict things that are going to happen, but they don't necessarily predict exactly how it's going to happen. Now, some of them did. Right, we do have some very accurate prophecies of things that were to happen in the future and they happened in uh, prophesied detail. But more often than not, the prophets prophesy something that will happen, that is the certainty that this thing's going to take place. But when it comes to pass, it happens in a way that's different to their prophetic vision. Now, is that okay? Does that mean they prophesied falsely? Well, no. They've prophesied from their perspective something that will happen for sure, um, but we've got to figure it out while it's happening that this is what they were talking about. But also, isn't there like that? Where does that fit into, like in the terms of history wise, where like there's messages like, you know, hold on to what is good and when Paul says about prophecy and stuff, hold on to what is good and let go and test what's said and all that type of stuff as well. How does that fit with something like that? Um, that's talking about a different manifestation of prophecy, the type of prophecy that we do. Hmm. Right? These guys, John and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, these guys are writing the Bible. Yeah, but I'm saying because John came... Well, after that was said, didn't he, or not? Well, yes, but um, uh, Moses said, if you're going to speak for God, you better get it right. Right Now, why did he say that? It's because in those days, the ordinary people of God did not have the Holy Spirit. Right, The ones who were anointed with the Holy Spirit was the king, the prophet, and the priest. These were the ones who had access to the Holy Spirit. And so the ordinary people of God had to rely on the priest, the prophet, and the king hearing God correctly, and then they had to do what those four officers told them to do. When, after Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit's given to everyone. It's at that point that we as believers have the opportunity to sit in a group to weigh what is prophesied and to sort out this is what God's saying. Does that, that yeah, make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I'm just saying, how does that 
Where does it fit in history with that? Like, was that before or after what Paul was writing? Uh, well, this is probably after Paul wrote that, but John is still writing the Bible. Um, now, was he conscious that he was writing the Bible? And actually, John's, it's very unlikely that John is the one who compiled the final version of Revelation. It's much more likely that his followers got his notes together and wrote, wrote the, the final draft of his essay. And John wouldn't necessarily have seen Paul's writings. Probably, yeah. Are aware of Yeah. Mm. Yep. So God says, sorry, the angel says, another voice from heaven calls out saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion, for in her cup she, uh, for in her cup she is mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment in the morning. Since she said, in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning shall I never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So the people of God are commanded to come out from the empire. Now this seems a little odd, given that the empire is going to last a couple hundred more years. Uh, 300 more years, actually. Um, it's likely that this is an appeal to not the people in the church, but to others who might hear, to recognise the empire for what it is and to come and join the people of the land, right? Come out of her, in other words, don't participate in the sins of empire or you will suffer the plagues of empire and you will uh, not like that. Verse six, seven and eight, we see once again that the downfall of the empire will come as a consequence of the actions of the way in which the empire has behaved. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, repay her for her deeds. Right? Pay her back as she has paid back others. So this empire that's operated by violence, by military conquest, by intrigue, by seduction, will fall as these things take place um, within the empire. Um, the four different groups of marauding tribes that eventually entered Rome, the only reason they were able to do that is because Rome became weakened by the greed and seduction um, and intrigue that played out with the later Roman emperors. Right? The Roman Empire... Um, <coughs> even under the Christian popes, right, at the end, was a disastrous place. 
um, full of corruption and some of the most corrupt people were the popes, um, allegedly the head of God's people. Um, and often the pope had more, in the last century or so, the pope was more powerful than the emperor. Um, when Rome finally was destroyed, and this was something that happened over a century till what historians will say, this is the end of the Roman Empire, right about um, 550. Um, <coughs> um, yes, the start of the Dark Ages. Um, that was the end of a long uh, period of decline for the empire. This is what happens to all empires. Now, the rest of chapter 18 is a lament. It's a lament from the people who benefited from the empire, from the merchants, from the uh, people who owned ships and the sailors, from all of the people who got rich because of empire. They are lamenting the demise of Rome, not because they're particularly fond of Rome itself, but because it happened so quickly and it put them out of business. Right? It's pure self-interest to the end. And then we get to a point where a mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and throws the stone into the sea and there's a huge wave and this wave sweeps away the city. It's a prophetic act. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride, bride will be heard no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in you was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And so John says that in an hour, the empire will be swept away. In reality, it took a century. But John's <coughs> promise to the people of God is it's going to end. Probably not in your lifetime. But the empire will be destroyed. Now, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but over the last couple of uh, days, the um, Russian mercenaries who've been doing Putin's dirty work in the Ukraine, the Wagner Group, um, lost patience with Putin and were marching towards Moscow. Um, they turned back last night, saying they didn't want to shed Russian blood. And Grozny, or whatever the guy's name is, um, has made a deal um, with Belarus. He's going to take his mob to Belarus. Putin 
is now a wounded beast. It's likely that what we're witnessing is the final end of the Russian Empire, which dominated the 20th century. Um, now, what's going to come in, if this is indeed the end for Putin, what comes next is probably not going to be pretty. Mm. Right? The person who rises to power to take Putin's place is probably not going to be a good man with the best interest of the Russian, Empire, Russian people at heart. Mm. We're seeing in Russia what John saw in Rome. And if you're paying attention to American politics, you probably recognise that there is a very real risk that the American people will re-elect Donald Trump. Yeah. And if they re-elect Donald Trump, the second time will be far worse than the first. Mm. And it is likely, therefore, that we will see in our lifetimes the end of the American empire because American democracy will not survive another four years of Donald Trump. And so we are currently living in a season of great uncertainty similar to uh, the Christians that John was writing to. Now, is it going to happen uh, by the end of this year? Unlikely. Will it happen by the end of this decade? We don't know. Will America cease to exist as a country? Probably not. But there are some very uh, highly regarded um, social commentators that saying that America is positioned almost exactly the same way as it was when they had their first civil war. Right? So a second American Civil War is one of the things that's on the cards. Right? And our previous Australian government pulled out of contracts with the French to uh, make a deal with the English and the Americans. What does that mean for our future as Australians if we've decided to tie our fate to a a fading Anglophone empire, mm. right? America and uh, England. England are colonial powers, right? America's colonialism looks different to the English colonialism mm. of the 18th and 19th century, but it's colonialism nonetheless. If this is a empire that is now coming crashing to the ground, what does that mean for a country like Australia? All empires end the same way. What are we called to do? It's a very dramatic window. Why don't we leave it there this Punctuate time? everything you've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit that I skipped over in chapter 17 that will end with. If I can find it, that is. At the end of verse 14, <clears throat> John says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, 
For he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. We're meant to be in that bunch. Right? If we belong to the Lamb, we've been called. We've been called to him, to serve him as our king. We've been called to his cause, the kingdom of God. And we've been called to his church to serve the people of God and to fulfill the mission that Jesus left with his church. And those who are called are chosen. And those who are chosen are called to faithfulness. Right now, even though uh, we're a pretty sad little bunch here today, um, there's only a few of us. I'm if we're sad. all together, not everyone's sad. sad. I'm pleased to hear that. <coughs> I'm talking about sad in terms of previous glories. Um, I'm not feeling sad either. I'm just had a head full of snot. <laughs> that's, diff that's different to being sad. Um, God's not as preoccupied as we are with numbers, with size. If we're all together, there's only a dozen of us. But a dozen in church history is quite a significant number. We're called to be faithful followers of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we do not know the future. You do. We don't know what's going to happen in Russia and the Ukraine, though we are concerned. You do. We pray for the people of Ukraine and Russia, especially those who name the name of Jesus and are followers of the Lamb. And we pray for your protection as the kings who have allied themselves with the beast make war on the Lamb and his followers. We don't know what's going to happen in America. It's a weird, crazy place that we do not understand. But you do. This is a country that styles itself as a Christian nation, although that rarely seems to color the choices that they make as a nation or that their government makes as a nation. Mm. But in that country are millions and millions of people who name the name of 
Jesus. We pray that you will open their eyes to the danger of allying themselves with the beast. And we pray that you will deliver America from evil. And God, we as a nation also face a time of uncertainty. We have an opportunity this year to make big steps towards finally recognising our Indigenous people. Big steps towards reconciliation. And yet there are those who have allied themselves with the power of the beast who are seeking to use this moment to tear down, to destroy. And so we pray for people of Indigenous heritage who are suffering terribly as they watch what's going on in the political sphere. We pray that you will save our nation from division and from further terrible behaviour and mistreatment of our Indigenous people. We pray, God, that you will rise, raise up the Australian people to support the voice and to move forward towards treaty and truth. That you'll come and finally heal our land. Because until there is true reconciliation with our Indigenous people, there can be no true healing, no true wholeness for us as a nation. We pray too that you'll give wisdom to our leaders with respect to our foolish alliances, especially foolish alliances with forming powers. We pray that you'll help our leaders to find a middle path, a path where we as a nation uh, set our own course rather than putting our future into the hands of another nation that could soon be back in the grip of a madman. And as we pray these big prayers for nations, we ask that you'll be with us and you'll help us to be faithful to the Lamb in our small lives, in the lives that we live every day as we spend time with our families, as we go to our jobs, as we move uh, through social relationships in our various lives, that you'll help us to be faithful and to live as those who are called and chosen. Amen.
I, I remember traveling to Vienna or some places, and uh, everybody would speak Austrian with the dialect, because that's the language. Everybody would be Catholic, or at least Protestant, or Evangelistish, whatever they would So they, they would have a Christian faith. Yes, so there were very, like, I didn't even know anybody who didn't have had a Christian faith, like, whatever that meant to that person. But now I go over there, and I haven't been traveling for a long time, but now lately I went for a week in Vienna, and I couldn't believe it. Arriving, talking at the checkout, like everybody spoke a different language. Like you could not hear my mother talk at all. Like there were the majority of people, and it seemed like a lot of people had different faiths, and like the church, where I grew up and where we ended up getting married, is like empty. Like it's like, it's really bizarre. Like it's such a small country, but I can see how there's a shift, like that it gets taken over from lots of different nationalities and it, it reforms, it feels like a little bit. So as you said before as well, like with, with Russia and America, there's a lot of changes, not just in those countries. I think Europe and you only have to talk about politics over there. It's definitely no better than here. So I would say worse than here as well. But yeah. I found it was such a small little place to be suddenly so diverse, which has never happened in you know 40 years of my life. And then suddenly, yeah, yeah there's a bit yeah. of a shift. Well, it happens so quickly. Yeah. I mean, there's a good thing, like I know, like the small, I come from a very small village with 1,000 people in India, and we never had foreigners living there. When I grew up, we didn't even know, like, that. <laughs> I can't even think about it. It would have never happened that anybody with a different religious belief or a different language would live there. If a German person would come there, it would be a foreigner, basically. Yeah. Um, but now we have a lot of Ukrainians living there, a lot of other uh, refugees living there. Like my brother would have Ukrainians working at the farm to help out. But for my parents to ever, you know, having to try and communicate with somebody, except with my husband now, but it is quite an unusual thing. Wow. And it takes over, if you're a small country and Let's say you have seven million people in the whole country, or eight million, and you have five million coming in. Yeah. It takes over the whole project, the whole country, and the whole yeah. nature of the country, yeah, exactly. culture, yeah. and religion. And I think that's worldwide a bit of a trend. Mm. That things yeah. change quite a lot. Oh, we're being called out of complacency, with yeah. comfortable, and yeah, pretty good for a long time. Mm. And I think the diversity doesn't have to be the end. Yeah. It is that call that yeah. God says, I call all people. You know, at one point I called just this, this family of people, but they all changed when Jesus came. Yeah. And he called everybody. Mm. So it just reaffirms the challenge that we can't stay in our pocket and our little safe soil. So we can't expect society to support us. I think that time is ending. Mm. And we have to be able to rise up and rise up in love, not fear or defensiveness. Yeah. What does it actually look like to do that? 
but there's not often enough people that think that way because there's a lot of uproar because their comfortableness yes. of living has changed a lot for a lot of people who lived in that country and then it becomes very divisiveness so people get very like even before the I always growing up with first and second world war I'm very battered by it as well but I can see before the first world war it was as well a separation like either way you're on that side or on that side there was no middle ground so either way like this or like that black or white there's no gray in between and so and that caused a lot of problems at the end as well so and I can see that now coming, especially in Europe. Like Germans and Austrians are very much like that. Like even my school friends, you're either way like this, you're either way totally for open up the borders and everybody coming in and you work with refugees, or you're totally against it. So there's nowhere a middle ground anymore where it's said like, yeah, refugees are really good, but maybe we need to spread them around a little bit. You can't have like, of a village with a thousand people, another thousand people refugees in there. Maybe they need to spread around a bit or think how you can do yeah. this. So there's no discussion because you're either way like this yeah. or like that. You can't be strategic when you're defensive. When you're yeah. Like they said, like you'd hope that like facts and details of the centre of history when you're presented with the facts, it doesn't seem to bring you to a new understanding. It seems to bring you to dumbing down on what you already believe. Yeah. Which is horrible. Like, but, but people present with facts that change what they believe and yet they bring <coughs> down what they believe throughout history, which doesn't make sense, but that's what is showing with so many things. It's that doubling down and like and they become more hard and more fast in what they believe rather than saying, How do I relate this to what I've already known? How does this fit into what I already know and how does I make this work? Because this is also something that it's holding more than one truth. So it's like sometimes it seems like it's hard for people. Yeah. Wow. It's just a side thought. No, it's good. Provocative. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's interesting about the Ukraine conflict um, is that it has the way the world's attention um, because it's a conflict creating millions of refugees but they're white yeah. rather than black or yeah. arab speaking and our response to refugees from the ukraine very very different to our response to refugees from somalia or sudan or iraq or syria um, because we look at white people from a wealthy, developed country, we think that could be that could be me, and so that challenges the prejudice that's automatic when we see people who come from Islamic nations or African nations that we don't relate to at all, and so we're quite happy to push them away. Look at the difference between our government's response to. Ukrainian refugees compared to our response to Syrian or Iraqi, mm. um, Sri Lankan. The, the whole thing's also been a bit bigger as well, though, I think. No similar scale to the mm. Syrian. You're thinking in the terms of in the sense of the amount of nations getting on board. Yeah, but that's the bit that has been exposed. Yeah. 
but I mean, like, we have been started. Are more likely to actually rise up in support of this. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, I, what I was, the point I was making was in terms of the number of displaced people, it's about the same. Yes, yes. yes. Right, there are about 150 million displaced people in the world. Yeah. And we're taking 40,000 refugees. How many? 40,000. Um, and we're one of the better nations. We had um, a refugee week essentially on Wednesday. Um, it was a uh, young lady from Syria that came to speak about Germany, but then more powerfully, one of our young students got up and spoke about her story. Um, and she was so eloquent, so simple, yet passionate. Um, it's provoked a lot of really good conversations uh, because she's in year eight here. I flew up to Ballina uh, on Tuesday for a Refugee Week event uh, with the Governor-General um, and our friend Mary, who is a single mum from Syria um, with two adult children. Um, she was one of the, uh, one of three refugees who've been settled by um the reason the governor general was there is that this is a new program which the canadians have been running for 40 years but we're only just piloting um where communities form a group that will support and sponsor a family to come and move into the into the community e excellent program um so one is that bring the community together too much bring some of the community yeah, together and then cause others to uh, not show their <laughs> resident perfect. colours. Um, but those people tend not to come to events like this. Yeah. Um, so the first family went to Brunswick Heads, the second family um, is Mary and her two kids who are 
living in our house in Ballina. And there's now a, um, a third family from Venezuela um, who've also come into Ballina. Um, I must say I was a little shocked and pleasantly surprised by our Governor-General who spoke eloquently and very well about the importance of what we could be as a country if we were to take up the challenge rather than the, the political othering of refugees and um, politicians playing the tough guy, I could be meaner to refugees than you, you are. Um, that game that our government's played for 20 years, when ordinary Australians meet ordinary <coughs> refugees, they discover that they're people who, given the chance, will make a significant contribution to the society. My two I see as a refugee fled Iran when she was five years old. Um, Mary has started her own business in her kitchen making Middle Eastern uh, sweets. So she started, so with the help of the, the group, um, she started a business called Sweet Mary Sweets and she's now supplying local cafes and restaurants with um, the sorts of Middle Eastern treats that we get to enjoy because we live in South West Sydney. But, uh, surprising delights <laughs> for people who live in a, a white town like Ballina. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. yeah, the, the lady who spoke on Wednesday, she ended up, she fled Aleppo and ended up in Lebanon and then her family and joined her there and then eventually they made their in Australia. She's started up like this exercise group and it just started off that she was just doing it for herself and a couple of friends, but it just keeps gathering steam as she kind of welcomes that she showed these videos of the class and it's got like grandmas and like tiny kids and they're all just having the best time dancing and exercising. She's just like, I just made this as an opportunity and it's generated itself into a business. And so now this is what I'm doing. You know, it's just like the initiative that was there, but then the response of everyone else kind of comes together. It was really very cute. There were two staffers there from the Department of Home Affairs. Um, now, the Department of Home Affairs, in my opinion, has been one of the worst government departments for the past seven or eight years, doing many evil things. Uh, but these two guys, were clearly huge supporters of this and instrumental in making this happen and Home Affairs will be in charge of rolling out this program across the country. Yay. Which shows that government departments can be used to do good if the people in government have the will to let government departments do good. Yeah. So.